It's good to be together and to praise his name together, isn't it? That's, that's a reason we gather, one of the reasons we gather. That song, is, that song is difficult to sing if you really think about it. To bless the Lord in the good is easy. To bless the Lord in the difficulty is tougher. But we gather together with fellow Christians, others who love Jesus, and we lift our voices to him, entrusting ourselves to him in all the ups and downs of life. Amen? So it's good to praise the Lord with you. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are glad that you are with us. We want to welcome all of you to uh, Faith Church family. Uh, this is family. So many of you are familiar faces and uh, are part of the family. We want to welcome those of you that though are not usually with us. If you're just with us uh, for a time or two, if you're just looking to connect with our church family, we want to welcome you as well. We all want to do our part in saying hello to you and answering questions and seeing how we can help you. So um, we'd love to hear who you are and how we can pray for you. Any of you, anytime, can uh, write, fill out uh, that communication card that's in the bulletin you got and drop it in the offering bag a little later. We would love to hear from you. And the rest of us, grab your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9 if you would. I want to jump right into God's Word here in a moment as we continue our series of messages that we are calling God-Man because Jesus is God and man. We want to learn more about Jesus, the God-Man, rescuer of all. Uh, open your Bibles and turn to <clears throat> Mark chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 42 in a minute. Mark chapter 9. Starting at verse 42, in today's passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and it's interesting that we just had a child dedication, we just had a room full of children leave, head off to class, and uh, as God puts us in this passage on this particular Sunday, we come to a passage of scripture where Jesus has just taken a child into his arms and is speaking to his disciples about different things. Uh, but has a child in his arms. And then we come to verse 42. Whoever causes, Jesus says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Becoming an obstacle uh, to, to a little one in the faith, becoming uh, an obstacle to someone, that, that, that getting in the way of someone following Jesus, tripping someone up in their faith, causing someone to rebel against God's good commands. To be part in causing someone's spiritual Shipwreck. This is a serious admonition here, a serious warning. How, how would that look for us to, to do that? Um, perhaps it would have to do with our attitude. Perhaps if we're more spiritually mature, or we've been following Jesus longer, perhaps our attitude would, would cause someone younger in the faith. It doesn't have to just be a child here. It could be someone new to following Jesus. It really could be any of us. But perhaps if we have the wrong attitude and we are discouraging them in their faith or, or belittling their walk with Jesus, uh, perhaps um, 
we would be an obstacle instead of coming alongside, instead of coming and encouraging and supporting them as they follow Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, when I read through that too quickly, too casually, I tend to respond in a silly way and say something like, this is the mafia passage. Because you get a picture of, of, of guys with weird accents and, and, and putting somebody in cement shoes, and then I read it again, and I picture it, and I realize this is no laughing matter. This is a gnarly, this is a gnarly situation to picture, and, and the point here is not that drowning is the consequence, but more that there is severe punishment There are severe ramifications for causing someone to derail in their faith, for someone to go into sin. Let's continue in the passage. And as we continue reading here in verse 43, there's kind of a shift from, don't mess with someone else's faith, and now it's a warning to us about our own walk with Jesus and our own uh, tendencies towards sin. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Thankfully, we need to know that these words of Jesus here are hyperbole, exaggeration. In, In other words, uh, he, he, is, he is using exaggeration hyperbole to make a clear point, to make a strong point. He is not urging you to actually cut off hand, foot, or tear out your eye. This is not an phys- actual physical commandment. But Jesus using exaggeration to make a strong point. The idea isn't cut off your hand actually and have no hand. The idea is do whatever it takes to avoid sin. Do, do whatever it takes to get out of things or situations or habits or be around people that are harmful to us and that lead us into sin. Fight against sin. Take drastic measures is the idea here. Why, why the hand, foot, and eye language? Perhaps hand was representing what we do to sin, or it could represent sins done by the hand, theft, murder, etc., etc. The foot may be representing where we go to sin. The eye perhaps representing what we see that leads us into sin, or sin that comes from the eyes, like lust, committing adultery in the heart. But the idea of hand, foot, eye really is to just encompass all that we are. That all that we are can, can be uh, tempted into sin. 
And sin, as the passage makes so clear, sin leads to hell. Unrepentant, continuing in sin, continuing in sin, going against God, walking by our desires of our flesh, of our nature, instead of, instead of turning away from those, instead of repenting of those sins, instead of turning away from them and to God for help, continuing to wallow and mess with sinful areas leads to unquenchable fire. The teaching here has deathly serious implications of the seriousness of sin's presence in our life. But God, but God offers salvation through Jesus Christ. The, the, the consequences of sin is death, but God offers salvation through Jesus, but God, through his son, the God-man Jesus, offers rescue, offers forgiveness from sin, offers life. Life now, rich, full, meaningful, not perfect, but now, rich life now, and life eternal with him to come. Jesus lived the life that we cannot live, was without sin. He died the death that you and I deserve, as we just read about. And he rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and death so that you and I can be made right with our loving God. But God offers salvation through Jesus. Yet even as Christians, even, even as we walk with Jesus, even as our salvation is secure because of our faith, we too need to avoid sin, don't we? We too need to fight against sin. Look with me at Philippians 2 on the screen. Therefore, this is Paul writing, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as you obeyed in my presence when I was there watching over your shoulder... Not only as in my presence, but now so much more in my absence, continue to obey. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the work out our own salvation might at first glance make you a little nervous because we know that we don't work to earn God's love. That we don't have to work to earn our salvation. But Paul said, hey, you were following Jesus by obeying when I was there with you. So now as you continue to follow Jesus, continue obeying. Work out your salvation with an awe and a reverence for God because as you continue in your salvation, it's not that you had to earn your salvation, but the way your salvation looks, the way your salvation will play out is as you continue to obey me. Does that make sense? Because look, and, and are we on our own? Are we on our own power to try to, fight against sin or to live how God wants us? No, we're not on our own. The verse continues, look with me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For those of us who are in Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you have entrusted your life to Jesus, if you have received the gift the gracious gift of salvation offered through Jesus. 
God is working in us. He enables us to serve him. He enables us to grow. He enables us to obey. The the passage says he works in you both to will and to work. In other words, it's it's God's working in us that's even enabling our desire to do the right thing giving us the desire to please him and and enabling our actions and our choices to glorify him in our words and deeds. And so friends, you are secure. Your salvation, if you are in Christ, your salvation is secure. And yet sin has, has terrible consequences. And we, and we are called to fight it. We are called to continue to obey and to live for him. And yet those verses tell us that God is working in us to help us do so. We are not on our own. But the passage in Mark that we read, it still said, your foot, your hand, your eye. It's still your thing. You can't count on spouse or or mom or friend to, to do your work against, to fight your battle against sin. It's your hand. It's your foot. It's your eye. We need to take action Our part of obedience then, according to that passage in Mark, is to act swiftly and decisively and completely against sin's influence in our life and against situations and people and things that would cause us to to fall into sin. God is with you. He is enabling your fight. He is empowering you. He is strengthening you. I don't want you to think you're on your own. You just got to try harder. That's not it. But we have a part. It's your hand. It's your eye. It's your foot. Cut it off. Do something about it. The hyperbole in this passage and the consequences that are mentioned in the passage in Mark that we just read are there to make sure we know there are deathly serious ramifications for continuing in sin. So what does that look like for you and I? What is the area of sin that we need to fight against? God will enable you. God will help you. He will give you, as as you walk with Jesus, as you trust him more, as you pray and as you read his word and as you grow in your faith, he will help you and he will strengthen you and he will help you in the fight. But what is it that is an area of sin in your life that you can work to cut off, to take drastic measures? I want to urge you to take time now or, or soon or today to ask God how we can act to remove ourselves from that area of struggle. I love what I do because I get to share good news. Jesus is amazing news for those of us who sin. So I love what I do and I love that we gather because we gather on Sundays to proclaim the good news and to, be ce- and to celebrate what Jesus has done and to be encouraged by what Jesus has done. But in some ways, the first step to celebrating and, 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 and being excited about what he's done, the first step in some ways is to acknowledge that we need help. Is to take some time, like I just asked you to at some point, to, 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 to reflect and to ask God to show you what area of your life You need to fight against sin. All right, let's get back. Grab your, you still got your Bibles open to Mark 9, hopefully. Got your fingers in the text. Before we continue in the passage, I want to ask us to read a couple of verses again. Um, 
look with me and read verse 44. Go ahead, read verse 44. Oh, okay, let's try another one. Okay, how about, you guys were having trouble with that one. Read verse 46. Okay, can you read verse 46 for me? Huh? They're missing. They're not in your, oh, come on. It's like this, 43, 44. Did you find it? 45, 46. Okay, there's verses missing in your Bible. Um, and, and here's the deal. <clears throat> if, it should be footnoted, and if you look at the footnote, it's going to say that the verses 44 and 46 are not in your Bible because they were not in the earliest manuscripts. Some of you are going, okay, no problem, I got it. Most of us are going, huh? There's verses missing from my Bible. Why didn't they just number them differently? And this, and this, if we're not careful, could cause us to ask questions like, is my Bible reliable? Is my Bible trustworthy? I'm, I'm supposed to read my Bible and follow what God says, but now they're taking stuff in and out and saying, well, it wasn't there, it's in this. What's the deal? So this is important, and in some ways, it's, I'm not continuing now to teach the passage. I'm going to pause from teaching the passage to teach you something, a few things I feel are very important to our walk with Christ, to our understanding of the Bible. And I want to take a few minutes, I hope, to help you. These are some things that I personally found extremely helpful that gave me, and the things I'm about to explain to you about the way our Bible is put together are things that have given me an incredible confidence that what we hold is God's word. Okay? The first thing really quick is inspiration. What's the doctrine of inspiration? The doctrine of inspiration is that God wrote our Bible. That, it, that, were, that it's literally God-breathed, the Bible says. God's word that you hold in your hand is God-breathed. He breathed it out. Yes, there were humans who put pen to paper, and the Holy Spirit carried them along, and God worked through their uniqueness and their histories and their experiences and their writing styles. God worked through the human authors and breathed out the Word of God. So far, so good? There's lots more on that you can read, but that's not my emphasis for now. Number two, translation. The Bible you hold, most of you are holding a Bible in what language? English. Maybe a couple of you have a translation in, in Spanish in front of you, I don't know. But you are holding a translation. The Bible was not written in English. Most of the New Testament was written in Greek. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So what you hold in your hands is an English translation. This, again, is not my emphasis for the next couple of minutes. There's tons of great resources you can read out there. But let me tell you this. Lots of very smart people spend lots and lots of time translating from the original language to your language so that what you hold in your hand has an incredible degree of accuracy. It's an excellent translation. We, we, we don't hold the Greek in our hand, but we can know what God wrote to us. With me? Inspiration, he wrote it. Translation, the translation process. Now here's where we want to spend just a little bit of time. Transmission. Not your, one in your car. I am of no help to you in regard to the transmission in your car. What we're talking about here is 
the transmission of the text, how did the original words that, the, that, the, that Mark wrote and the other apostles wrote that became our Bible, how did those written words get transmitted from when they wrote it on a piece of paper to the piece of paper you hold in your lap? 2,000 years ago, the New Testament was written. How did it get from there to what you hold? The Old Testament was written even longer ago. How was it transmitted to us? What was the process of getting it to us? Well, the first thing we need to acknowledge is extremely significant, and it might sound discouraging at first, but we'll acknowledge it right away. We don't have the originals. The originals do not exist. What Mark wrote onto papyrus or whatever doesn't exist. So, at first, we might be discouraged. We might think, okay, well, does that mean I just have copies of copies of copies and copies of a translation and translations of a copy and copies of copies and just a big mess? Is that all I've got? No. We can, in fact, be highly confident that we know what those original pieces of paper said. And I want to tell you a little bit about how. While the originals don't exist, thousands of original language... Greek and Hebrew pieces do. And in regard to the New Testament, here's the next, uh, it'll be on the screen here. In regard to the New Testament, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,600 pieces of manuscript in Greek of the Bible. The, The pieces, these fragments, could be anywhere from a whole book of the Bible to just a couple of verses. But we have around somewhere in the neighborhood, give or take, 5,600 pieces of the New Testament alone. And at first, that might sound like, well, then it's going to be hard to figure out, you know, what the Bible said, uh, because some of the, we're going to talk in a minute about the fact that some of the pieces have slight differences in the same verse. So we might at first be like, oh man, it's going to be hard to know what the original said. But here's the thing. It's actually because of the fact that we have so many, because we have so many pieces, is actually the very reason we can be confident and we can know what the originals said. Anybody ever heard of uh, guys like Plato, Sophocles, Caesar, Tacitus, Thucydides? Just nod and smile. I did too. I'd heard of Plato. Okay. Okay. And I'm not talking about the clay for kids, right? P-L-A-T-O, Plato, the ancient philosopher, writer. Um, You know, we can have conversations. We can go to history class. We can have conversations in our culture about the writings or the sayings that are attributed to guys like Plato, Sophocles, Caesar, Tacitus, Thucydides. We have conversations about their writings, and we just, yeah, that's what they said, right? For the most part, I think we just accept Okay, that's what those guys wrote thousands of years ago. Well, here's the deal. Some of their writings, there's only a couple hundred, if that, pieces of their manuscripts in existence. A couple hundred. Are you with me in the contrast between a couple hundred and 5,600 pieces of our New Testament? And then, so it's it's, it's an embarrassment, what's that phrase? It's an embarrassment of riches. This is an embarrassment of riches that God gave us so that we know what he said. It it, it dwarfs any other ancient manuscript documentation 
out there. And another thing people sometimes say is mind the gap. They want us to mind the gap. What are they talking about? They're saying, well, hey, how long went by from the originals to the first copy? The, the first copy, on, the first fragment we saw on our screen. You know, what's that gap? Well, when you talk about those guys I mentioned, Plato, Sophocles, Caesar, Tacitus, the gap between the original and the first known copy in existence today is, is 200 500 years, some of those writings, 700, even 1,200 years have gone by from the original to the best copy we have. You with me? Much of our New Testament, the gap is only 45 to 75 years. And those original copies were still in existence 50, 100, 150 years later. And we have copies that are only 50 or so years removed. There's an author of a book I'm going to mention in a little bit. There's an author that studies this stuff who argues that given the age, the antiquity of some of these manuscripts, and combine that with the fact that these manuscripts were used for hundreds and hundreds of years, here's his quote on the screen. It's very well within the realm of possibility that we have in our museums today copies of the originals, period. That's what it, full stop. In other words, are we looking at copies of copies of copies of copies? No, he's saying it's well within the realm of possibility that in our museums we have first-run copies. So, some, some of that is too much for some of us. We're like, yeah, whatever. Other of us are eating it up. I hope it's helpful to some of you. But here's the point. All of that makes the Bible the greatest preserved document from antiquity. Nothing else comes close, and, and no reputable scholar, Christian or non-Christian, will deny that the Bible is, is, is a well-preserved document. The difficult part, as I mentioned earlier, comes that some of these pieces, some of these fragments, some of these manuscripts differ. And here's an example on your screen. You could pick up a fragment, a manuscript, a copy over here, and it might say that Matthew 24, 27, 24 says that first line. And then you might find another copy, another fragment of, this, of a manuscript that says the verse is that second line. And yet another fragment might say the third thing. So, so here's where things get a little more interesting or difficult, depending on how you look at it, that some of these pieces differ from each other. These are called textual variants, where there's a slight variation between wording, word order, etc. So along comes a, an area of scholarship called textual criticism. Textual criticism is a field of study, a method used to determine what the original documents of the Bible said. In other words, with textual criticism, the question is, which manuscripts are most reliable? The field of textual criticism is asking the question, there's all these manuscripts out there. There's all these copies of the Bible out there. Which is the most reliable? Which one has, which, one can, which ones can tell us what the originals said? This is an area of scholarship with smart people working a ton, spending tons and tons of time, and um, careful reasoning, logical deduction, cross-referencing all this information. It's, it's art, it's science, 
It's hard work. There are volumes and volumes of books you could go get if you wanted to know the details of Christian scholarship on every little variation, like in our chapter today, Mark 9, where these couple verses are missing. You could find all this if you really wanted to. But I'm, I'm trying to just give you a, a quick version so that we're helped in trusting our Bibles. Most of the variations that occur, I feel like I should do a, like a little dance or something to make sure we're all good, we're all awake. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Here's the, most of the variants, most of the discrepancies are, are honestly pretty uninteresting and undramatic. In other words, when they find slight differences in some of these manuscripts, oftentimes it's things like uh, plural versus singular. The guy copying the original slipped. The pen slipped. He switched a letter for a letter. He switched a word for a word. He missed a sentence on accident. Stuff like that. Most of the things that we find that are differences are things like, is it plural or singular? They switched the word order. They wrote it in a different mood or a different tense. Boring stuff overall. In other words, most of the textual variants had little to do with the meaning of the sentence or the passage. There's only two major passages that have variant issues. They're on the screen. The passage in John is when Jesus confronts the woman caught in adultery. That may very well have happened. In fact, it might even be likely that that's a true story about Jesus. But in your Bible, you'll find it bracketed with footnotes because there's a question of textual variance. There's a question of, was that on the earliest manuscripts? Maybe it wasn't in the first John manuscript. Maybe it was added later might still be something that Jesus did, but the textual criticism people take this stuff so seriously they want you to know what they found. The other passage on your screen is the long ending of the book we're studying. As you know, we are preaching through the book of Mark. And here's one reason I'm taking the time to do this today, is we're teaching through the book of Mark. And we're going to end on Easter morning with the empty tomb. It's glorious. 44 weeks in Mark. And you guys could go, or you could go, this is awesome. We study the Bible at Faith Church. 44 weeks in Mark that end at chapter 16, verse 8, and the empty tomb. And we won't teach 9 through 20 because there's a little question as to whether they were in the earliest manuscripts. Are you with me? But here's a couple more things. I know, so here's some rustling pages. That's excellent. You go over and find the brackets around those stories and the footnotes, and that's why it's there, because they want to they let you know what they found. But here's what. Here's a couple things not to miss. I'm almost done with this part. Don't miss this. I said that most of the variants were uninteresting, that only two major ish, uh, passages are affected by the, the, these variants. In fact, not one Christian doctrine... Not one significant thing we believe depends entirely on a section of your Bible that is in question. Does that make sense? In other words, the little passages in your Bible that have these textual questions, like was it there in the oldest, was it not? But the passages that have those variants either are not significant, are not teaching a significant doctrine that we believe, or 
The doctrine we believe is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture in a part of Scripture that is not questioned. So not one Christian doctrine depends solely on any of these sections of Scripture. I've given you a lot of detail, a lot of explanation, and maybe I've stirred up more questions than you even had when you got here. I, I, I may have, but, but here's my hope and my prayer. My hope and my prayer is that this gives you more confidence that the Bible we hold in our hand is God's word and that it's reliable and that it's trustworthy. Because I may have stirred up some questions. I may have, I may have caused you to want to go find out some more resources or read an article about this. That's great. But for, at the end of the day, for me, learning these things that I just covered gave me more confidence that we know what God said through the original writers on the original manuscripts. So what's that have to do with our passage then? Well, I told you a couple things. Number one, it'll affect where we stop teaching the book of Mark in chapter 16. Today, we notice that there is no verse 44 and 46. They were not in the earliest manuscripts. Perhaps they were added later by scribes. Why? Maybe an accident? Did they just copy it over again? Verses 44 and 46, if you read your footnotes, should be the same thing as verse 48. It would have just been inserted two more places earlier in the paragraph. So in other words, it would have been the same phrase two more times. So it doesn't really change our reading of the passage or our understanding of the passage. Perhaps it was added for stylistic or poetic reasons, the repetition or something, I don't know. But the textual critics take this so seriously, they want you to be able to trust and rely on your Bible that they took them out and put a note at the bottom so that you would know those verses were not in the original manuscripts. You with me? Okay. All of that. They did. All that work they do is so that we'll know that we can rely on our Bible. If this is an intriguing subject to you, I can recommend this book to you. Um, It's going to be on the screen. A book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. It's a small book. It's only 100 pages. It's a great series of books called By Nine Marks that I I, I have enjoyed all of them that I've read. I cannot be honest and tell you I read about one and a half chapters of this one but it also comes highly recommended from people and places that I trust. So if you want a, a pretty quick, easily readable resource on things like translation, transmission, manuscripts, why are these books of the Bible in my Bible and some of these other books I hear about not in my Bible, this is a great book uh, for some of those topics if that's an area that some of you would enjoy learning more about. Salt! Okay, so I got to tell you a quick story as we, as we wind down here. Uh, I used to be a camp director, and I, one of my favorite jobs was I directed a Christian camp, and, and uh, we had 2,000 kids come through, 200 every week were campers. My ministry was to the 80 or so college students that were our staff. I got to teach our staff. And one morning, I stood in front of our staff devotions early in the morning before the campers woke up, and I was making an announcement, or I might have even been teaching the Bible, and I was in a flow of thought, you know, and I was teaching, and here's a, here's a um, vocational hazard for people that talk for a living, right, is that I don't always speak perfectly. Can you imagine that? 
So my brain is going and I'm thinking and I know what I want to say and I got all this stuff I'm trying to teach and I'm getting it out. And in the middle of a sentence, I said, salt. And then like trailed off. Has your brain ever run faster than you could get the words out of your mouth? I, wa- I think what I wanted to do was say, there's an old expression, I think, the salt that away. You heard that expression? You know, like take that piece of information and salt that away. I think what I wanted to do was say something like that, but you know, salt. (laughs) I feel a little like that in this passage when you now keep get your finger back in the text, Matthew nine. I mean, Mark nine. We're at verse forty-nine now. I feel a little bit like that with these couple verses. That the salt comes out of nowhere and it's a little hard to understand. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Hmm. Salt. This is a very uh, difficult phrase. It's, it's pretty, it's a little enigmatic. Uh, and uh, scholars, you know, uh, work on this and, and come to some different conclusions. But I think basically what we can talk about today is that we're helped in understanding this phrase here in verse 49 by understanding that in the Old Testament times, sacrifices to God were made accompanied by salt. And so perhaps there's an ex- uh, a, a reference here of salt speaking of sacrifice, of offering our lives as sacrifices. And fire symbolizes persecution. So as you see on the screen and the Bible says elsewhere, we as followers of Jesus then, we need to realize that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices that we we do and say and we live as a sacrifice pleasing to God and that includes even enduring suffering. Everyone will be salted with fire. And then verse 50 says something more about salt, something different about salt. Salt is good, verse 50, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is a different use of the word salt. And uh, here's, another, here's another way it's used here. And this is the way it's used here in verse 50. Salt was used in the ancient world to preserve food from rotting. So Jesus here and elsewhere in scripture uses this kind of phrasing, be salt to the world, uh, as salt preserved food, Jesus calls his followers to be a preserving influence in the world. Whatever you do, friends, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, the Bible says. Whatever you do, friends, whether it's you're at work, whether it's you're at school, it's in your neighborhood, it's, it's whatever you do online or in conversations. Salt. Be salt. Preserve. Help. Point people to Jesus in whatever you do. Jesus calls us to bring a positive. Salt was a positive, helpful preserving, flavorful thing for food. Jesus then calls us to be positive, helpful, flavorful to a world that needs Jesus. Jesus calls us to be a helpful influence on people that thirst for the living water, 
the water that only Jesus offers. Our culture is swirling with difficult and challenging situations and conversations, even the last couple of weeks. Something new all the time, what it is that we need to wrestle with as a culture, what we're arguing about in our world. Uh, But we must not despair. We must not be unsalty salt. This passage in verse 50 says it. Passages elsewhere in Matthew say it. What happens? Be salt, friends. Preserve. Be helpful. Be a positive influence for Jesus. Don't be unsalty salt. So let's get specific for a minute. There's discussions going on, as you well know, in, in, by the water cooler, perhaps, and certainly on Facebook and um, perhaps elsewhere in your lives right now. Do These conversations are circling around racial inequality in our country and support of our flag and our country, and uh, the lines are drawn and arguments are made, and uh, people have strong opinions. Yes and no? Yes or no? Okay. I, I just, I want to I take... Two minutes here as we wind down to have us think through this a little bit. Perhaps, let me just suggest that perhaps the issue is not as black and white as it first appears. Please, please, let me encourage you as your pastor, as someone who loves you, as someone who wants you to grow in your faith and wants you to live for Jesus and wants you to be a positive influence in our culture. Please don't be stuck in the echo chamber of opinions that just match up with your own. When we only look to news sources that agree with us, we're stuck in an echo chamber. And we don't hear other opinions. We don't hear other arguments. I'm not talking about who's right or wrong. I'm talking about just not being stuck in an echo chamber, agreeing with our own opinions. Read other viewpoints. Think things through. Reason. Put yourself in someone else's shoes and approach the same topic from a different perspective. As your pastor, I'm not going to tell you where you should land on these issues. I don't need to. But I want you to grow in gospel focus. I want you to grow in what you're prioritizing and in in what you are portraying to a world that is hurting and destined for hell. And instead of piling on, can we evaluate what's going on out there what the perspectives are, where people are coming from, even those that differ from us. And can we recognize that those opinions that differ from ours are coming from others who are made in the image of God? Those other viewpoints that that may be right, may be wrong, that we disagree with, we may not disagree with. I'm talking about who's right or who's wrong. I'm talking about listening. Listening. Caring enough about others made in the image of God to hear where they're coming from before we make blanket statements. Salt. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. Followers of Jesus, what if, what, 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 what does it look like? If we just decide this is a black and white issue, this cut and dried, there's a right and wrong, if we just decide that and we decide that our perspective is right, and then I go about bluntly and perhaps even rudely proclaiming that in conversation and on Facebook, what kind of representation am I giving to Christ? 
Am I, are my words and actions drawing people closer to Jesus or giving them reason to reject Jesus and Christianity because of me? It's fine to have an opinion. It's fine to have strong feelings on these things, but let's try to see others' viewpoint, put ourselves in their shoes, and friends, let's put love ahead of being right. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Jesus wants us to be positive, helpful, loving, flavorful, offering people what they need, life in him, being used by God to draw more people to him. And let me pray for us. Father God, we are so thankful for your great love. Father God, we are so thankful that in the midst of awareness of our sin, in the midst of being aware of how we go against you, we also know that you are gracious and loving, that you come near to us, and that you sent your son to live, die, and be raised again so that we could be made right with you. Father God, help us to search our hearts for where you want to work. The beginning of our passage this morning called us to consider how we can fight against sin. The end of our passage this morning reminds us that we are to be light in darkness, that we are to bring your good news to those who need it. So God, help us to wrestle with these things. Help us to hear from you. Help us to walk closely with you. God, would you help me not to just to, to stay where I am, to sort of be okay with where I am, but to continue to draw near to you, to know you more, to live in obedience, to fight against sin, and then to share the good news with others, to be a conduit of your love to everyone around me. Father, use us. Use us individually. Use us as a church family to be flavorful salt making things around us better for your glory. As we continue to lift our voices and give our gifts, we do so out of humble and thankful hearts for all you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God invites us to run to those arms of love. We, we wrestled this morning with, with our tendency to sin, with our need to fight against sin. And the Bible in Ephesians 2 is clear that it's in that sin we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we're stuck in that sin, the Bible says we are children of wrath, deserving of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That is good news, friends. Jesus is good news. And we celebrate that together. And uh, we get to share that together. Share the news of Jesus and the love of Jesus with those around you. And have a great week.